You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. I'm Barton Williams, and you're back with The Small Print. With me today is Franz Crenier. And as always, we like to start off by asking our guests to please introduce themselves the way they would like to be introduced. Ronald, hi. It's nice to see you again. Um, I suppose I'm an analyst. I was the executive head of the IRR for a number of years. And uh, whilst they established another outfit within its auspices, which tracked major trends for South Africa, political, social, and economic. And that was a tremendous job. Took us right around the world, uh, spoke to literally hundreds of organizations and uh, various uh, governments, government departments and agencies on what was happening here, why it was happening, and uh, what was going to happen next. And over time, our clients um, got used to that. Many of them started moving to the rest of the world. We followed them with that same uh, methodology. And uh, if you think of me, you can think of me as an analyst with South African roots, thinking about a lot of the rest of the world at this time. Well, that opens up for a very interesting first question. Did your clients leave South Africa because of your research and because of what you pointed out or in spite of what you were saying? No, I think uh, we always said to clients there was nothing like a positive or a negative analysis. Those words they needed to banish was cold, hard, clinical analytics. And they needed to follow the long-term trend lines and understand how those could turn, because it's always a mistake to use long-term trends to make uh, short-term predictions and vice versa. And they needed an excellent understanding of of history, of how societies uh, changed and the like. And then they could put themselves in a position where there would be no surprises. And that on South Africa was perfectly possible. It's been possible at at any point over the past 20 years that nothing that happened needed to take you or your organization by surprise. And that's that's the winning formula. Because if you've got a top management team and you know what's going to happen and why it's going to happen, then you're not going to get into trouble. You're You're going to circumvent icebergs and you're going to see opportunities long before your competition does. What was difficult is convincing clients, this is where we weren't good at all, of things that could change and how they would change. And I think our calls overall were were pretty good on, on where things would end up. But I know that very often our clients found it difficult to go with us. And despite having the information in hand, many of them nonetheless found themselves confronted one morning by dramatic events that they had the, the, the information at hand to anticipate, but they didn't know what to use it for and how to use it and, and got burnt as a consequence. And then when you're burnt, then it's very difficult to, to, to talk that, that group back into, into thinking that there are long-term opportunities. So it was an odd experience because I think we had a methodology that worked. And we had very good information. We, I mean, we had an amazing insight. Uh, uh, and we made good calls. And I'd say on balance, most of our clients found it very difficult to use that information to their advantage. 
That's a really interesting point. Why do you think that is that people, when presented with the facts, and I'm also kind of in the industry of essentially being a sort of secular prophet, and you can tell people what is likely to happen, but the purpose of our role is not to predict the future, it's to prepare people for it and to encourage people to take action if what we are seeing is likely to happen, you know, does not get acted against. Why is it that people, when presented with information that might be uncomfortable, tend to do nothing? It's not that people make the wrong choices. From certainly what, from what I've seen, people just make no choices at all. Yeah, uh, that that became fascinating. In fact, for me, it became even more important than the content that we were providing. Was beginning to understand the psychology of the groups we were talking to. I mean, some became very animated, and and some became quite angry at the things we said. We had to remind them, listen, we're with the analysts who don't shoot us uh, at, at all. There were two things. One was a failure to properly understand the implications of complex systems. In, in a complex system, a small change in its present conditions will bring about a massive shift in its future consequences. It's really the butterfly effect uh, uh, made real for politics and economics. And uh, therefore, at times, I mean, during the Mbeki era, South Africa is growing at 5%. There's this solid kind of business, labor, Mbeki pyramid. The country's doing really well. We've forgotten uh, now that there was such a time. We had, by uh, example, by the end of his tenure, doubled the number of people in employment. And uh, this is the stonker. We had built 10 formal houses for every house newly erected in the country. We were running a budget surplus and debt levels had been cut in half. And we were saying to clients, you know, the clients were just, this was absolutely fantastic. And, and we were saying, just hold on there. There's this chap, the name of Jacob Zuma. We were actually the first proper serious group to host Zuma for a, a breakfast after he'd been cast into the wilderness. Clients found it very difficult to go along with that. And that was simply complex systems at work. And if you understand complex systems theory, you know that it's, it's not as crazy as it sounds, that, that the world can turn on a dime. You can be the civil rights movement in America and in your lifetime see a black man in the White House. And you can watch Mr. Obama address them all in Washington and say, yes, we can, to a million people, and turn to your mate and say, you know, for all that this means, the next guy to stand there will be Donald Trump. And sometimes it's the way out there calls that have this uncanny ability of happening. Firstly, the problem is complex systems. Executives don't understand. It doesn't seem to be taught in, in business schools or, or, or where you should learn such things. Second point is it's the, the very core function of the neural cortex is, is prediction. You and I are here, whereas uh, other members of the species didn't make it uh, through over time because we were better able to anticipate that there was danger around that corner and there was a, a safe route around, around that corner. If, if you made the right call enough, you make it all the way to today. When you deny that kind of certainty to a person, you trigger a physiological effect equivalent to denying nicotine to a smoker. That uncertainty, you can't predict. And particularly when you're talking to a CEO with his board or exco around him, CEOs are, are, are meant to 
to, to, to sort of exude confidence. They command their environments. They know what's going on. And when you get a very compelling analyst with good data, you put him in front of a CEO, and suddenly you're telling this business, listen, only one of the worlds that you're thinking about has a realistic prospect of occurring. But we could be in a world where everything is topsy-turvy, upside down. That person starts feeling quite uncomfortable. And the response often is to try and, and, and sort of overrule the analysis and say, but no, we know what's going on. We're, we're in command. And I found often South African CEOs were more inclined to overrule the analysis, which any clients are most welcome to do. We're not there to convince anyone. We're there to expose them to ideas. Foreign clients were very much less inclined to do the same thing. And I think that had that's many reasons for it, one of which is that scenario-based strategy has deeper origins and in, in parts of North America and, and, and in the present day in parts of Asia than it's had in, in South Africa really since the era of Clem Sandra and Anglo-American. So those were the two reasons. The, this physiological effect of being confronted with the fact that you perhaps don't know what's going on all the time and, and this, this, this inability to understand the enormous power of what's called the emergent property of complex systems. Very well put. I, I would also add that I think the South Africans, certainly from my observation, I think that many people across the world observing us would tend to agree, tend to err on the side of optimism in the face of sometimes quite insurmountable odds. I mean, South Africa as a society has been weeks away, depending on which sort of analysts you speak to, from disaster for many, many decades, not just the last couple of years. You know, there's always been a reason why South Africa could or should be failing, at least sort of in living memory. But we tend to err on the side of optimism. That's why many of us are still here. This can be both a strength and a weakness, though. It can be a strength in that even in the middle of chaos, like in the middle of lockdown last year, people just get on and do things and make a plan with sort of what's left of whatever their reality was. And you pick up and you sort of carry on again. But it becomes quite negative, too, when it becomes acceptance of disaster or that acceptance of the frog in the pot kind of a scenario. So I think that South Africans are quite unusual in that regard, in that we accept problems and chaos and we accept bad presidencies and corruption and we work around it rather than trying to fix it head on. That seems to be a sort of a, a cross-cultural tendency that we have that is quite different to other parts of the world. And this is where it becomes challenging because if you are natural optimists, you tend to have quite great expectations. And when your expectations are filled, like they were, like you were saying, during the Mbeki years, that's delightful. Everyone's happy and everyone's very optimistic. And it doesn't take much to kick us into that gear. It can be something as simple as a soccer World Cup can change the whole tone of the whole country, even though it really shouldn't because that doesn't fix any real problems. However, the problem with being overly optimistic is that general human happiness can be sort of summarized by that very twee equation saying happiness is equal to expectations minus reality. And that means when our overly inflated expectations, our overly optimistic expectations are confronted with a reality that ends up being far worse than we expected and worse, far worse than we led our children and our young people to believe, that optimism very quickly swings into very depressive, very bleak pessimism. 
it's almost paralyzing. And I've definitely seen that sort of swing in our society probably in the last couple of months where we've gone from blind optimism and people saying at the beginning of COVID lockdowns, like this is a perfect opportunity for us to, you know, rejuvenate and reform ESCOM, for example, to the point that we're in right now where people seem to have lost hope in anything altogether, which is where I really wanted to start the conversation with you today, because I want to get into what's happening with the future of, in terms of both pessimism and optimism, of expropriation without compensation and property rights in South Africa. It's such a critical cornerstone of investment and in self-fulfilling expectations, which we'll get into. But I first wanted your thoughts on what I'd said there about South Africans' general optimism bias and how it can be a trap. You, you, you in a sense, channel smuts. You said it before you that uh, South Africa is a country where the best and the worst never happens. But it might not, I mean, it's not quite as profound an observation as it appears, it's probably true of, of, of the whole world. I think at a superficial level, you do have these swings to blind optimism. But um, if, you, if you read, for example, the optimism loudly expressed of the business community against something solid like uh, the the indicator of fixed investment to GDP, you see a glaring contradiction that the expressed optimism is not matched by the money. And you need only attend a, a sort of top flight, um, high net worth investment seminar on South Africa at any point in the past decade, including after the ascension to power of Mr. Ramaphosa, to see to what extent that loudly expressed optimism is uh, unmasked by the uh, stampede to get your money out of the country. So I've got some cynicism about the, the, the optimism pessimism, on the optimism side sometimes. But there is a problem of swinging from one extreme to the other. Uh, we were quite optimistic uh, ever more in, in the present about the long-term prospects for South Africa when we consider the political implications of, of, of the trends that the country's on at the moment. And I'm as unable to convince my clients en masse of some of those outcomes as I was to warn them adequately of the implications of the collapse of the administration that Tabo and Becky had put together in the country. But I think we must also remember, particularly where we occupy a sort of elite stratosphere of South Africa, that for many people, in the country, life is a disaster. If you're unemployed and you live in some hovel in the deep Eastern Cape, you know, your standard of living is uh, of uh, an equivalence that could be compared to some of the worst areas in the world. And uh, sometimes the elite, I've often had it, a, a sort of a client at a well-heeled dinner would put it to me that you must be more optimistic. Uh, we, we must work to South Africa's success, undoubtedly, and that requires a, a deep well of optimism, I assure you. But also be aware that for many people, uh, life today, country, half of young people are unemployed. The growth is nowhere. Real per capita GDP has been falling for the last couple of years. If you haven't been very much exposed to global stock markets, you haven't done very well in, in any sense. And that, uh, yeah, the, 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 the elite's propensity for seeking to express optimism must be tempered somewhat by a realistic appreciation 
of the consequences of living in a country in which the policies of its government are not conducive to creating the the real confidence to draw the capital, to create the growth, to support the jobs that will see millions of South Africans escape a life of poverty and desperation. I think you've put it, you've hit hit the spot that I was hoping to get to because there's optimism professed and then there's optimism acted on. There is at some point investing in your actions, like your actions do speak louder than one's words. And there's a huge danger to optimism professed, particularly from high and public places that sets people up to have their hopes unfulfilled. And in order for any society to be really optimistic, that is to actually act on that optimism, which is essential for any sort of progress, hope has to be believable that you are able to get to where people are saying you're going. And I think what we've seen happen in South Africa over the last, probably the last few years, is that we have lost belief in our faith and professed optimism. This this is obviously a metaphor you can put to a lot of currency things too. So we're still speaking the same words, but people are no longer believing it. People are voting with their feet and with their wallets against what they are saying. And inadvertently, then we start supporting various vicious cycles rather than virtuous ones. Yeah, may may I say something? Because you say something very important. Um, Public opinion in South Africa is, is a very positive thing. If you poll what people want, ordinary people, not the sort of uh, elite uh, stratosphere of society or its political classes. If you poll deeply into the populace and you ask good questions, the results are the most uplifting thing you can read at the moment. And that has been true for the last 10 years. And some of the stuff's publicly available. And you people want to put in some links to that. I can give you some of, of that. But, but w- while people have lost confidence in the ability of the government to deliver a better life. The polls are unambiguous on that. They have not lost confidence or optimism in each other. And quite at odds with the sort of mainstream media and sometimes social media's propensity to try to convince you that uh, relations between South Africans have reached a lower point than they were at in the height of apartheid and the whole country is prepared to drive itself and each other into the sea, what we pick up in polling, and it's, it's, it's very many years of it, is that ordinary people retain a great sense of respect for each other across the lines of history and politics and ideology and race and age and socioeconomics, that they clearly want to work together to make the country a successful place, that there is limited appetite for radical populism or racial nationalism. And uh, to such an extent, that if you read those reams of data that these things produce, that you know, you get the distinct impression that despite its leadership, ordinary people in South Africa actually like each other. And they really want to make the country a successful place. And when you talk about optimism and pessimism and the outlook, don't confuse, which you wouldn't do, but some people might. Don't confuse criticism and negativity towards the performance of the government with broader public opinion, which in the face of the odds, and before we even get to the history of the country, 
is immensely positive and undoubtedly the most powerful single countervailing factor now in favor of South Africa's long-term success is, is trusting in, in ordinary people to ultimately do the right thing and, and get through this era that we're in now, I promise. That's a very important point, but goodwill and, and hope and trust in each other can only take us so far. So I've had these conversations with various different people that look at the South African economy and the economy at large. And there are certain things that one has to get right if you want to make good on those promises of hope and future potential. And one of those things is, of course, that you actually have to feed people. So we're now sitting with our world leading unemployment rates. You know, congratulations to us. We're at the top of a particular list. Of course, that is based on data from countries that actually put out this data, but still it's not an accomplishment to be particularly proud of right now. And we're sitting with the fact that food poverty lines are increasing at, at a rate that we can't keep up with keeping food in people's hands in forms of grants and various other entitlements, that at some point we need to find more money, or more particularly, we need to get the things that people need into the hands of people who need them, very basic things like food and water and electricity. And that does require some sort of level of economic, if not growth, at least stability, but hopefully growth. We really do need growth. We don't have the luxury of indulging in degrowth type policies that, that Europe can dabble with right now. And in order to get the economy going, you need to have optimism turn into optimism with action, because that's how you grow markets. People have to invest in it, if not with their money, with their time, and they need to invest in their own economy. And unfortunately, in order to encourage that, because incentives do speak louder than intentions and for all the love and goodwill in the world, people don't want to invest in a project that they don't see a tangible future in. That means that we need to get the basics right in terms of the structure and quite simply be talking about law and order, the, the rules of the game. As I've had these conversations with many people, you can have quite bad rules, but as long as the rules are equitably applied to all the players in the game, the players can make a, play, a plan to actually start playing. The worst thing you can do with an economy is to have uncertainty as to the rules of the game. That basically paralyzes people in terms of taking any sort of action. You can't take defensive or offensive action properly if you don't know what the rules of the game are that you are playing against. And some of the policies that we've seen thrown around our parliament at the moment are undermining that certainty that, that comes for the future. And certainty is so critical for getting investment, which is required to build businesses, grow businesses, get jobs and get the whole economy circulating again, both from an internal perspective and also from an external perspective, which becomes even more important of actually attracting money from outside the borders if we want to actually grow this project. Can you speak to that point around certainty a little bit? And if you agree that it is important for growth? Well, ab absolutely. I mean, if particularly if, if you understand, which you undoubtedly do, uh, the people who listen to a thing like this, that we're not an island unto ourselves, that we're competing with some very impressive emerging markets. And uh, years ago, a client perhaps put it to me best. He said, you know, we, they were miners. You know, miners are very tough. And they said, no, we, we, and they work in the toughest regions of the world. And they said, no, we, we can deal with violence and, and insurgents. We can, we can deal with not having electricity. We, we can deal with, with corruption. 
Uh, we, we can deal with policies that chop and change. Uh, we can deal with infrastructure that doesn't always work. But what we can't do is deal with all those things at once in the, in the same society. And, and that is what South Africa presents. Another client in, in America put it very well. He said, when we, we listen to you, um, you, you at, from a, a sort of 30,000 foot view, the message from South Africa is we're open for investment. We, we need you to come. And, but when we get here, he said to me, your, your government is like a whole lot of different musical genres. So a string quartet, a jazz band, a, a rock band, an orchestra. They're, they're all playing at the same time, but they think they sound coherent. So we'll go to the Department of Science and Technology, who'll say that this was the case. It's wonderful that you're here. And then the next day will be a DTI and they'll say, well, you know, if you want to be here, you've got to comply with this, 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 this. You've got to give away 30% of the business. Otherwise, we don't want you and get up. And, and they say, well, you know, the, the, <laughs> what happened overnight? So I think um, that that you need certainty, but also certainty that, that policy, policy, no governments make wonderful policies, but that policies won't be utterly destructive. And all of this can now be distilled into one uh, uh, South African issue. And that is the question of property rights, because fundamentally what that is, is to say to someone domestic or foreign who would commit their capital to the country, that that investment is, is secure in your hands. I mean, you could lose it if you do business badly, go bankrupt, but we won't take it away. And as soon as you raise doubts about that, you're raising doubts about the very most fundamental consideration ahead of any significant investment decision. And you're doing so in a society where you already have to deal with, with energy problems. We can get into those a bit. We've got very good numbers on what they mean for the next decade. You've got difficult regulatory environment. You've got a weak skills base. You've got, you've got infrastructure that's severely strained. You've got high levels of crime, all, all manner of things. And when you add that, the effect of it is it's a watershed decision what happens next on South Africa for this. Because if we do not back out of this expropriation business to the point that it is a non-issue that's off the table, the consequence will be of this, I'm quite sure, that South Africa will not again aspire to rival the growth rates of comparable emerging markets. And to give you a sense of what that means, over the next uh, four or five years, if the global economy holds itself together, of which there are reasons to, to test that assumption, emerging markets should grow at rates of between 4 and 5% on average. And that takes into account the fact that China's growth rate has also come down so very uh, quickly over the past 20 years. South Africa is forecast on the three-year view within the South African government to average about a third of that. Now, South African government growth forecasts have, over the past decade, been out by a margin of around 50%. So the, the, the same institution that runs the country and is driving the policy of expropriation is forecasting into the medium term that the country will only be growing at best at a rate a third of its emerging market rivals. And in that, I think you have the central consequence 
of this policy of expropriation, and it's going to be a battle to back out of it to a point that our fixed investment levels, we measure such things as a share of the size of the economy. They've been falling since Mr. Ramaphosa came to office. They fell through Mr. Zuma's term in office. They need to rise again on the same trajectory that they rose between the end of the Asian financial crisis in 98 and Mr. Mbeki's departure in 2007, eight, because the fixed investment rose very quickly through those mm. Mbeki years as a percentage of GDP, the effect of which was multiple. Growth would, by the end of his time in office, average for four years 5% economic growth. That was the first time that had happened since the first half of the 1960s. As a consequence, we saw this very positive job growth that neither he nor the ANC ever received credit for. Debt levels were cut in half. I've told you that. The deficit was eradicated, mm. that had been inherited from the Nats, and we rolled out the most expansive social welfare program of any emerging market that did a vast amount to raise consumption expenditure in the country. It really was a very impressive performance on paper. Leave the expropriation issue hanging to any extent, and that cannot be replicated again. This is what is at stake. For the benefit of people who aren't familiar with what South Africa's expropriation policy or plans, plan policy is, can you describe it in the sort of business card format? What, what does it mean? Okay. Is it uniquely it South African? Comes a, comes a long way. First decade after 94, uh, South Africa becomes a democracy in 1994. Property rights at that point, in effect, haven't been uh, uh, accessible to any significant extent for the great majority of people. That changes on 94. With the exceptions of mining and water rights, the South African government is pretty firm on the protection of those rights for a decade, which is um, uh, 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 much to the... Um, sort of enthusiasm of the global investment community who were unsure, they'll deny it, but they were, about this movement, the ANC exiled in the Soviet Union and East Germany, come to lead South Africa. In part, that basic uh, uh, support of property rights allows this investment recovery and this massive economic turnaround from which the ANC incidentally draws great benefit because through that era, its support in national elections will rise by about six percentage points. And, and they subsequently today down 12 points from that high point. At the time that Thabo Mbeki, who's, who's inherited Mandela's economic legacy, is, is removed from office by the ANC, at that very moment, the same conference, the ANC becomes very aggressive. Now, we read a lot of ANC papers. We, we try to read absolutely everything, every speech, every comment, every, every document, everything. Talk to a lot of people, try and hear what was said. The ANC becomes very aggressive about the failure of what it calls the willing buyer, willing seller model of land reform in South Africa, saying that this has, has failed. Some of the Mbeki-era administration will later go on to say that we haven't spent much time and effort on it because we didn't see it as a major priority, which is an extraordinary thing to say in South Africa, but true at a certain level. The polling shows South Africans do not have a great interest in going to become peasant farmers on formerly commercial farms. The, the, the desire, the dream, particularly for the rural poor, is to come to cities 
where they Much can like the become employed <laughs> and live and then live exactly like like the people in the in, in the everyone West else. Yes, so hardly a it's, a, it's a shocking revelation for some South Africans, but it's perfectly logical, very odd if it wasn't true. So land reform has been rather slow through that era. And this populist charge comes along that willing buyer, willing seller has, has failed. It is an effort in the main to undo much of the economic policy legacy that has been instituted by Mandela. The, you, you can find it on, on, on Google, and we quoted it now and again. It's really a legacy that owes its origins to a speech Mr. Mandela delivered in Davos in 1992, where he said, at odds with the gist and drift of policy his party had been exposed to in Eastern European exile, that we will be pragmatic and we will try to grow the economy and attract investment and the like. And that is resented within the left wing of the ANC. You saw it as a great betrayal of uh, some grand uh, socialist revolution to which they'd hoped uh, the, the uh, moment of liberation would inevitably lead. So it's a thin end of a wedge, this willing buyer, willing seller story to try and overthrow that apple cart. It's not driven by Jacob Zuma. He's not an ideologue. He's, he's, he's not a left winger. He's, uh, he's probably the least ideological leader the ANC had had. His, his interests were much simpler than much that. Sit at home, learned, put it that way. As, as, as we learned uh, to our um, dismay. But he, he's brought to power in part by various factions opposed to Mbeki. The left are very influential. And under his leadership, given his, 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 his distance from policy, the, the relative left of the ANC that's been isolated since Davos in 92 plays a far more prominent role in policy making and policy writing in the second decade of our democracy. So some of the racial policy edicts become very much stricter. We get the mad proposals around the mining charter, which made that industry practically uninvestable. We see the wage bill take off in the civil service, which is now so central to our fiscal problems, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the kernels that grows out of this conference is the idea of expropriating land. Now, we would track in the years after the 2008 conference, I think about 12 or 14 laws and policies and white and green papers and the like, each of which built very neatly on the other in order to try and take South Africa to a point where the state would change the constitution, seek to do so, the ruling party, in order to set a precedent sufficiently broad to allow the seizure of any fixed or movable property without compensation. And something we stress through all those years is that the primary focus is not land. Land is a very useful political wedge, given the history of the denial of property rights to black South Africans, to act as cover for the establishment of precedents that over the years became focused ever more on the seizure of financial assets, so the deep pools of private capital in the country. And the reason for that became, over this decade to today, quite practical. It's now more than a decade. And that is that the model of cadre deployment that holds the ANC together now, more than anything, 
always been a feature. Now it's a primary feature. Was for 20 years financed through access to taxpayers' funds, but the uh, tax position, the fiscal position, uh, makes it ever more difficult to sustain it. And there is an attempt underway, it's been going for a number of years, to pivot that model of cadre deployment away from a dependency on tax resources towards a dependency or an ability to tap those deep pools of private capital that, that exist in financial institutions, pension funds, and the like, where under the cover of infrastructure projects and development bonds and the like, these funds will slowly be looted to sustain those networks for a further era. And it is with this in mind that the drive towards expropriation, the precedents trying to be established on the question of land, is taking place. It's culminated now in two legislative attempts. One is an expropriation bill. And the second is an effort to amend the constitution as a backstop to that bill. And what the two separately and uh, collectively will allow is that the state could expropriate you. So it could uh, seize an asset that you own. It could develop a further legislation in time to expand that beyond land with little difficulty. And, uh, in, and, and then you might lose that asset. But far more dangerously and little known, is it introduces a concept called a custodial taking. Now, custodial taking and an expropriation are very different. And I'm, I'm sorry it's heavy, but it, it, it's, it's as simple as, as I can, it's simple enough that I can understand. And a custodial, an expropriation sees you lose the uh, uh, powers and benefits of ownership and another entity acquire those. In that case, Compensation is payable, and that now may be nil, is where the, 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 the lawmakers are headed. A custodial taking is a very different thing, because you could lose the benefits of ownership, but the state would become the holder of that benefit, not the owner thereof. It would become the custodian thereof. And in a very important constitutional case in 2013, the Chief Justice said that where the state, and this is deeply simplified, I'm not a learned jurist, said that where the state becomes custodian, in other words, it hasn't taken ownership, but simply holding the asset on behalf of the people or society, there an expropriation has not occurred. And because the expropriation hasn't occurred, there is no talk of or need to consider the question of compensation at all. And this is the much deeper. A more insidious danger that sits at the heart of these two legislative efforts, the expropriation bill and the constitutional amendment, both of which are moving through South Africa's parliament at this time. Yes, that's, a, that's important that you've clarified that point there, because with, as you said, with the expropriation one, the sort of title deed, if you're talking about, say, plots of land, transfers ownership, and the new owner then has that asset. There's still an asset on a register that belongs to now a different person. Under the custodial sort of framework, all that's really happening is that the state takes has now has the right to use, but they don't have necessarily the same sort of responsibilities of 
ownership that go with it. Is that a, is that a correct way to look at it? So you're you almost splitting the ownership and the right to use the asset. Yes. Uh, you, what, what's happened is, let's make, try and make it practical. You you owned a, uh, a business of some sort, agriculture, whatever the case is, and you were its owner. And you had all the benefits of ownership. You had an income, et cetera, et cetera. The state could come along and expropriate you, and then you could have a fight about whether you're going to be paid. And the state could argue that, well, zero compensation is now permissible, and therefore it's none. But there's, there's a debate to be had. Alternatively, the state comes along and takes your business away. You've had exactly the same experience as being expropriated. Last all your the state says we don't own this business. We we're holding it in a sense, and we'll make it available to people to use, so they could uh, apply, or get a license or a permit. Uh, it's like a mining right. Uh, mm. the, the mining rights were taken essentially. The implication of the 2013 constitutional case, they weren't expropriated. They were taken as custodial takings, and the state could make this asset available, and then to someone else and someone else. Where that has happened, now you, you're a, a practical, normal person. You say, but this sounds like crap. There's no difference. And you'd be right, because a global uh, a precedent on, on property rights protections protect you both for a direct and the sort of indirect taking. It's only South Africa now that's, that's prominent in trying to split this hair, split the hair they have. And, and the state would say, well, because we're not the owner, we're just sort of making it available to anyone. There's, no, there's nothing to talk about. There is no expropriation. It never occurred. And it's as nuts as it sounds. But it's a precedent that even if it's initially established now politically and loudly on the question of land, has already occurred. This is not an academic debate. It already happened with mineral rights in South Africa. It's already happened with water. It's now set that is an apolitical objective to happen with land, whether it will or not, we will see. And once that's happened, it's 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 everything is fair game. Pension funds, other businesses, uh, assets that you own, and the like. And you must ask yourself, in in given how little firm action has been taken on the question of state capture, that many of the leading suspects remain prominent in the ruling party and its government that the government is running out of money, that it faces, a, part as a consequence, a serious prospect of political defeat. Given these powers, if these are acquired, what will be done with them? And I, I, in, in, in that case, it will be very difficult, even for the most determined proponent of South Africa's future, to sustain a short to medium term uh, uh, analysis that things are looking very bright. Yeah, I think that's so important to interrogate that basically our social contract as any sort of nation state is propped up on a trade between the citizens and the government. And one of the core things that is negotiated in that trade is property rights. This is to a large extent where a lot of the legitimacy of things like taxes come from in that you are paying almost protection money so that your assets are protected, your property rights and your person are protected against others within that border that might want to take what you have, be that your life or your stuff, that's essentially the trade that you have with your government. When that is undermined, it undermines the legitimacy of the whole democratic project. 
in it's certainly for my reading of the situation that's definitely my understanding of why we negotiate into nation state type contracts with each other there is a there's a trade but there's a set of rules that we all agree to follow and when those rules are undermined and can be arbitrarily sort of overwritten at the whim of whoever is in charge do you really have a democracy anymore or is does it really become a lot more of a of a farce now, i don't want to go too far down that road but i do think it cuts into like the very fabric of society and where you sort of go from here but what i did want to ask you well we still got you here and for time is how far down the road is this process now as you said there's already precedent in our law like these things have already happened so once it's happened it's much easier to happen again the next time around clearly being looked at by many different legal minds that understand the loopholes involved very much. But how far down the road is it and how inevitable is it that property rights will be essentially in name and not in nature in South Africa within whatever time period you're really looking at there? It's, uh, you know, you, you, you do a lot of these things and you, you sort of want to say it will all be all right, but it's very difficult to, to do that in good conscience. And I've seen too many analysts, um, quite serious note, sit over the years, economists and the like, and actually lie to their audiences. We're in serious trouble. Both pieces of legislation are at the end of the road in terms of parliament, will be voted on uh, towards the end of this year, and then might exist. They then, of course, you can sign things into law and the like. It's not guaranteed that the ANC will have the support of the EFF that it needs to pass the constitutional amendment, although we must wait and see. Even if it's not passed, what will happen is that new attempts will be made to pass it in, in subsequent years. Don't be uh, misled, though, by the, by the constitutional amendment failing, because the expropriation bill in and of itself is probably sufficient to achieve a lot of this. It has, after all, done so already in mind. The precedent's there. The Constitutional yeah. Court has ruled on custodial takings. That precedent exists. So we're still in trouble. What will then happen is that the legislation will be subject to a series of court challenges on the manner in which it was introduced, its constitutionality and process which has been deeply flawed in how it has been brought about. That could buy time ahead of actioning and implementation. But be aware these efforts are also on the go. Prescribed assets, for example, contrary to the views of much of the investment industry, are a very real threat and a, a, a determined objective of the current administration. So you'll there's already precedent there again. There, this is already in play. <laughs> well, well, the attempt is there, and 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 yeah, you you can uh, finagle what has been done already to to go some way down this road in terms of pension funds and the like, for example. Allocations are allocations. So my um, uh, my look, I've been involved in, on this question since two thousand and eight. Many groups have only recently woken up to it. So in, 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 in the sort of universe we occupy, we're still in the same long-term war of attrition against the threat to property rights that we've been in now for 14 years. And we're going to have another two or three years ahead of that, with, regardless of what Parliament has, has decided to do. Of course, in the interim, while the investment community sits and watches what might happen, we're not going to get out of the starting blocks in terms of catching up to our emerging market peers. 
in the fullness of time, I think now it's quite a thing to say that the only way out of this will be the political defeat of the ANC. It's gone too far down this rabbit hole and has committed itself too loudly and the internal momentum and the ideological balance within the parties too heavily skewed towards it that I can't see it walking away from, from these policies again. Even if a half-hearted attempt is put up at defending them from the challenges that will lie ahead. But that, that, that possibility of an ANC defeat is something we first put in print in a newspaper in 2014 where we were ridiculed. For this. We've kept the article because it's one of those wonderful things. Um, that's now becoming a serious proposition. And I, I go a little bit, my, my answer actually opens the way to something else. That, that probably the fundamental question on South Africa, going back as far into living memory as you choose, has been where, what will the inflection point be towards reform? In the 80s, it was the Rubicon speech and the, and the coincidence of the decision of the American banking group, Chase Manhattan, to call South Africa's loans. And that was mm. the trigger point. Of late, the question has become, what is it? And some analysts have thought of it, you know, the end of Mr. Zuma, the coming of Mr. Ramaphosa, the mandate threshold, the COVID pandemic. That, that would uh, shock us into reform. But it hasn't happened, and it hasn't happened for the reasons I cited, that I think the, the, the internal institutional uh, balance and ideological balance in the ANC is passed on, on policy, past the point of no return. And, and, and that's a serious thing to say. But the result thereof is that the inflection point towards reform is now a very dramatic one. It is one that sees South Africa go through over the next decade, a political a realignment on a scale of what last happened here in the 1980s, where a dominant authority, in this case a democratic one in that era, not at all, is, uh, uh, runs out of room as a consequence of internal contradictions that bring about appalling economic performances and deep deficits that that party cannot sustain. So we're in a race here, in a sense, between the ability of the ANC to action these policies in its final years and whether it will be beaten to the, to the post, as it were, by its own demise and never get to the point of actioning. And, and that's, 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 that's really the race. We explained to a client where we are on this. We're racing in, in, will the ANC lose power before it has the ability to action these policies or will one of its final acts in office, because the consequences will be so economically devastating, yep. the ANC will find it difficult to survive them. Will it implement in those final years? Uh, or, or will it not? So if you, you look towards the horizon, do think that there have been people who've been in this fight now for 14 years. There are probably another five or six that lie ahead. It's probably going to be a 20-year era. And on balance, uh, one of the more plausible outcomes now is that it ends and the threat is, 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 is mitigated by the defeat, political defeat of the ANC. I suppose then the challenge becomes if any of the other options on the democratic table are playable characters. At the moment, there are questions as to what the viability of the alternatives are. So it almost sounds to me, like when I listen to you there, that 
if you want to make any sort of difference in this, you've got to look outside the party rather than inside the party. Is that what you say? Are you yeah. saying that the ANC itself is beyond internal reform, that any sort of reform has to come from without, not from within? Or do you think that the reform can come from within? Or I suppose the third option is a, a factional split. So it has to <laughs> destroy itself <laughs> yeah. rather than reform. The split happened in 2007 and the balance of the intellect of the ANC departed. And you can look around, you'll find people who were very successful, technocrats in government, and on the scoreboard had those growth numbers, the debt, the deficit, the jobs, the service delivery, the welfare that I've quoted. They, they aren't all dead. They are very much around, but they're not in the present administration. They're a diaspora, should, like <laughs> political internal very, diaspora. Very deep and probing questions about why not and about why one of the last hangers-on has recently vacated the office of the Minister of Finance. You should ask probing questions. The, 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 so the current ANC does not have the wherewithal to do this. It has run out of the things it needs to govern South Africa. The, the, the intellectual depth is not there. It's, it's and 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 you you get you you get uh, uh, sort of cold to this by looking at this sort of asinine level of policy debate in and around that party now. But go back to what we saw 25 years ago. You can find it on YouTube. Watch Mandela in Parliament talking about policy, and you realise that my God, how far have we fallen? It's run out of the intellectual depth to govern. It's run out of electricity. Frankly, uh, Mr. Derater is doing his very best, and the country will, in the fullness of time, owe him a debt of gratitude. But that best is not going to culminate in putting South Africa from an energy perspective in a position where it can rival emerging market growth rates. And we estimate now, by the end of this decade, if South Africa is to sustainably rival those rates, it will need to be reaching a position where we generate as much electricity outside of ESCOM as within it. In terms of money, the deficit uh, that we face at the moment, the difference between what the government spends and it earns, has been eclipsed on only three previous occasions. That same window of 1985 of the Rubicon speech in Chase Manhattan, the Second World War, when the consequences were instrumental to the defeat of Smuts in 1948, and prior to that, the First World War. It's also running out of supporters and voters. There's some recent... A polling around puts the ANC on a measure below 50%. We see fair amount of polling. We've got a, 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 a batch in the field baking at the moment of our own. And amongst younger people and people with jobs and people with matric, we've been polling the ANC in the past at well under 50%. So the intellect is gone. The electricity is gone. The money is gone. The support is gone. And what is certainly gone is the aura that that party brought to office around Mandela. It's now, I've, I've spent some time abroad recently, and it is, it is a, so, as a South African, it's such a jarring thing that, that the country is not taken seriously, and neither is its government in serious places. On that collection of forces acting on the ANC. The, the, the cold an analysis, the, the clinical uh, uh, stuff has to be that there is now a serious prospect of its demise. And I will probably go on if I think of what I experienced on, on just on the question of property rights over the past decade and a bit. And 
to say that it was that decision in 2007 to challenge willing buyer, willing seller, which was the basis of the of the economic ideology that had made that that seen the ANC become so successful in its first decade. It was when that was gestisant that the clock was set ticking on the ANC's long-term demise, and it was ultimately therefore hoisted by its own petard. That's uh, definitely a cheerful way to pause this conversation. We might have to get you back to interrogate some of the more sort of future-orientated issues, but I think that really does set the, the stakes very neatly as to what is at stake here and how we have got to this point and what the future paths are. Some of them more attractive, obviously, than others. But the point is that property rights, as we know them, are not guaranteed to be continuous based on the current incentives on the table. And incentives do tend to dictate the future more than many, many other things. And right now, we simply don't have the incentives within our current ruling structure to stop pursuing this particular agenda for the many reasons that you have laid out today. People must eat, especially the eaters. They are hungry. So to close off with, I want to give you a chance to clarify any points or to close off any threads that have been left hanging in this conversation. And then I just want to ask you a little bit further about where you are headed yourself right now, because you're no longer with the IRR. Who is the we of which you speak when you refer to the research that you're doing right now? And where can people find you going forward if they want to connect or continue this conversation? I, I don't know. I'm still very involved in... in in assisting my successor uh, into his transition. Uh, and uh, the, the fact of it is there the are no firm decisions yet. So, so I will be uh, joining the ranks of the unemployed, I suppose, uh, temporarily. And, um, and thank you very much for this. It was great to talk to you. And yeah, certainly, um, I'm very happy to come back again. Thank you. Thank you so much. And if people do want to find you personally, are you available on social media or would you prefer to no, not be found? I always have no, to ask no, this. I'm never on social media. I'm never on social media. I have never. Smart, that, smart. I don't. <laughs> I find your standard of living is much higher if you evade it. There is a website at www.france-cronier.com. But be, beware, many of my cousins have that address as well. And you can end up with uh, filmmakers, cricketers, doctors, and uh, uh, all sorts of you france-cronier.com you'll find me there we'll consider it a scavenger hunt and if you're smart enough to find it you deserve the prize at the end of the day thank you so much for joining us today and definitely we'd love to continue this conversation at some point in the future mm -hmm.